0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks again for joining us on one of the last panels of the 2022 Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Zach Schmitz, and I am a first-year MBA student at MIT. And it is my pleasure to announce the panel today of the numbers behind the books, How Gambling Companies Leverage Data. Our panelists today are Gene Lee, the SVP and Chief Analytics Officer at Caesars Entertainment, Entertainment, Jeff Ma, the VP of Startups at Microsoft, John Sheeran, the Commercial Director at FanDuel, and we are moderated by Mike Morrison, the Vice President of Business Development at ESPN. Our panel will run for 55 minutes, and you can leave all of your questions on Twitter using the hashtag NumbersBehindTheBooks. We'll save 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. Over to you, Mike.
1: Thanks very much. So good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for staying with us late in the day. And we're about to dive into you know, the fascinating discussion around sports betting and analytics. There's obviously an incredibly robust discussion these days. I don't think there's a day that goes by that sports betting isn't among the top headlines, and it's an incredibly fast-moving space. So as we start and think about analytics and sports betting, Gene, and you're sort of the self-prescribed expert here, so we're going to go to you first. <laughs> and maybe help us define what analytics means to sports betting.
0: I think the short answer is it's leveraging data and insights to make better, smarter decisions. So whether it's a marketing decision, pricing decision, you, know, you, just, you choose your pick, but it's just really around just smarter decision-making.
1: And have you been able to... You kind of spread your influence from an analytics standpoint across the whole organization because obviously you're looking at it from a Caesar's corporate perspective, and now suddenly you have this new developing area in sportsbook that you're, you know, responsible for.
0: Yeah, so cover my team covers a lot of different areas of decision support. Uh, Traditionally, we grew up in the brick and mortar space, so it was really around, you know, VIP analytics, you know, product and gaming analytics, decisions around the floor, marketing analytics around offer optimization revenue management, hospitality, labor, food and beverage. So how do you price hotel rooms, menu pricing? And over the past year, we've been focusing on digital space. So learning how can we uh, make smarter decisions in trading, pricing, uh, marketing, cross-marketing, VIP, VIP uh, decisions as well.
1: So John, from, from your perspective, you, know, you spent a number of years in Europe. You saw Sportsbook evolve a certain way there. You come into the US market. You are able to design it perhaps differently from the beginning. What is the biggest difference from your perspective in terms of how we're, you know, we're applying analytics now versus maybe how it was done in the past?
2: Yeah, I think we were lucky. We had businesses internationally that focused on U.S. sports already, and they were a key requirement, particularly in Australian sports bet where the NBA was our third highest sport anyway. Uh, so we'd probably five years head start on a lot of the other operators in the U.S. when it comes to using analytics to inform decisions around probabilities and how we go about building models. they're probably the two main tasks that our quantum analytics teams uh, led on initially and yeah I think they when we launched then in the US I think the um, acceleration from there was the key point for us. Uh, you know we were keen to invest in other sports that maybe weren't as high a priority like the NFL and I think we got ourselves into a position where, you know, our product offering is probably best in market based on that advantage we had and the acceleration that we utilized when we got up and running in the U.S. So we were talking about this before, you know, your definition of analytics. In some ways, you feel
1: like, you know, uh, Jeff, it it sort of gets thrown around very loosely. And, uh, you know, I think your point was you think it is well-defined perhaps in sports betting, but maybe not as well-defined. Well, I mean,
3: analytics is just like a ridiculous word now. Like everyone uses it and doesn't really know what it means. Like... You know, you'll see some decision that an NFL coach makes and like, you know, Chris Collinsworth will blame it on analytics and everyone goes, oh, these, you know, nerds, whatever. Right. And <laughs> it's in in sports betting. I mean, analytics is at the core of everything that anyone that is professional does. Right. Whether it's these guys on the evil side of the counter or whether it's the, <laughs> you know, the, the people that are trying to make money as sports betters. Right. Like the only way to make money sports betting really is to have analytics at the core if you're originating obviously if you're someone that's just following the market and betting in front of the market you probably don't need analytics but you need some level of analysis and tools to do that some technology so um, I think yeah it's 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 well defined I think for betting um, but I do think there's also like things that people say even in betting analytics which aren't really analytics like they'll analyze trends and things like that like oh, you know, on the third Tuesday of every month, the home team covers 75% of the time. That's not analytics, that's just idiocy, right? So,
1: <laughs> so how do you feel about, you know, how the, the casual fan's gonna use analytics in terms of betting?
3: Uh, poorly, probably. I mean, they just, the again, like the, you know, mainstream media is not, no offense to ESPN, um, but, you know, that they, they're not doing service to how to portray sports betting, because they're just taking, like, people that are known faces and that know sports, like, and, and trying to get them to, to talk about sports betting, and they, they don't have any. Now, the other problem is that someone that knows analytics really well is going to probably suck on television, right? And so, like, you you don't have a great crossover of, I mean, this is not, uncom- like, it's not dissimilar to the world of finance and things like that. Like, TV and these analysts become a lot of education, I mean, a lot of... Uh, entertainment versus like education. So I, I think I think there's like companies out there like um, you know, unabated and things like that. that are trying to give you tools that like allow you to use analytics to make better decisions in sports betting. But I do think the most common use case right now is still a casual better who just really wants to get a bet down and doesn't want to do a I I mean, using analytics is work, right? Like right. people are just inherently lazy. So if they have an opportunity to make a decision that's a simple decision like you know, I like the Cowboys tonight because I am a Cowboys fan. That's, that's what they're going to do.
1: So, Gene, you know, without sort of speaking about proprietary aspects of what you're doing mm-hmm. at Caesars, how, how do you deal with all this, right? I mean, you know, Jeff speaks about use of analytics, and maybe the casual fan will use, you know, the tools that are available to them or maybe not. You know, how, how do you make that available to betters, and how do you think about it from a, how do you, from a management of the sportsbook standpoint?
0: Uh, so you're asking about the sportsbook aspect? or yes, the-, the sportsbook aspect, yes. Um, So we provide, you know, like a lot of great markets. So when you go watch the Super Bowl, there were hundreds of markets available. And we provide, you know, in-game betting. And so these are kind of the tools with prices that can enable customers to make, whether or not they want to make that bet or not. So I'm not sure if I answered your question correctly, but uh, is this analytics for customers to make smarter betting decisions? Do you
1: make make tools available to your customers to help them bet smarter?
0: Um, So we've come out with, a lot of educational videos, Kenny Main, you know, has a lot of, you know, fun little cartoon sketches that actually, right now I think we're in the education phase, and so we are more educating customers on what a prop bet is, what does Moneyline mean, and so I think we're still in the early days of that, so I think.
3: I mean, but it's like a misaligned, the question's kind of silly, right, because it's a misaligned incentive, they don't want to educate people to make money, because they make (laughs) money when people lose, right, so. They don't want people to be better at betting. Like, I, I, I totally yeah. get like educating them so it's like, more yeah. approachable, but that's the, that's the hardest part about this business, which is the reality. Like, you two are yeah. nice people. I'm sure you're not out there <laughs> yeah. trying to make people lose, but you only make money if people lose. So John, that's the you, reality. So I, I, do you agree
2: with that? John? I would yeah. say that it, the question is slightly counterintuitive, but yeah. fundamentally I think we're in a place where we just want bettors to be as informed as they can be. Does that mean that we're going to surface internal IP around analytics and modeling and you know, share 100% probabilities? Not all the time, but there's certainly more that we can do to help make, betters, make a better decision, which you might argue is you know, not our end goal, but certainly want to build a more sustainable market over time, and I think you know, that's an evolution that happened in Europe and in Australia over time, where you're trying to give uh, betters more information in real time, and they'll make better decisions. Of course, some of them will still bet the Cowboys because they like the Cowboys. But, you know, I, I think all we can do is take it as far as we can and kind of help influence their education. So we were talking about this the other day about odds, right? So, you know, today,
1: every sports book offers potentially different odds. Yep. Maybe it's a half a point different. Maybe it's a point different. Which is sort of seems, you know, counterintuitive to a lot of other markets we're familiar with. There's, there's Maybe there's, you know, price comparisons, stocks are value what they're valued at. There's not a different price depending on what trading engine you use. So, does this continue for a long time where, you know, each betting house, each sports book is going to continue to offer different odds, Gene? Or do you think ultimately it consolidates into one approach? I
0: think if you look at what happened in a mature business like hotel pricing in Las Vegas, there's going to be a transparent pricing market and then an opaque channels. And those opaque channels is where a lot of the big players will compete. Um, And so, the opaque channels, maybe you know someone that's worth a lot to the, to the casino will get a free hotel room. you know they don't play the Expedia price or they might get ten dollars off and so that opaque channel is kind of I think the next frontier for competition. Can you
3: explain to them what you're really saying? It's essentially you're saying that <laughs> like people that win won't get the best prices and people yep. that lose will get the better prices, right? So yes. it becomes incredibly predatory in my mind if you think <laughs> about that because you're basically like, you know, like the, the again, the challenge with all of this, and, and again, I don't follow you guys because you have to make yeah. money, but you have to call a, sp- a spade a spade in this situation, which is that, you know, they're not, they're not doing things to help the better, basically, because I, they, they ultimately I, won. I it.
0: think it's helpful to take a step back and understand why did states legalize gaming in the first place? And it's really the primary... Reason is to grow revenues for the state, you know, budget deficits. Um, And so when they select and license operators to offer online gambling, the objective function for both the state and the operator is to responsibly grow as much revenues as possible. So leverage analytics to improve decisions at the end of the day to fund state initiatives.
3: So what's in, okay, so I, (laughs) <laughs> Again, like, the, the statement that you're making is essentially that the reason that the legalization happened is because states needed money, right? Yep. And they needed a new revenue source. The only way that they make money is if people lose, right? That's the revenue. And, and that's the unfortunate thing about this business is that's, that's the case. Now, I think one of the things that would be really interesting to hear from you guys is how much you think about the pace that they lose at. Because if you think oh. about, like, gaming mechanics in like, a really good video game, they're built so that, like, you don't lose a lot, right? Because otherwise you're not going to come back. So how much do you think about, you know, that throttle of losing players? And, you know, like, the the ideal thing is for you guys to have these guys just lose a little bit every month, but never, ever quit.
0: The optimization function is lifetime value. So over the long haul, we don't want people to burn out. We don't want people to have a terrible experience and, and, and you'll never see them active again and they have to bet within their means responsibly. And so the objective function is, we, we have to predict over the long haul what's the safe and responsible way to maximize lifetime revenue. So that's our objective function. And we've run lots of tests around, You know, this is where we tweak hold. You know, Hold is the industry metric for how much the house has an advantage on things. And so yes, if you crank up the hold, they're gonna lose really fast and have a negative experience. Whereas if you dial it back, and so it's always a debate with but, the industry. But
3: your casino is at least known and purchased one of the casinos that has the highest hold, right? Yep. So how do you rectify those two? Because you're essentially yep. throttling the hold as high as you can, and that's sort of like what that company was known for, right? Um,
0: so we've
3: run a lot of tests, and for us, we you know, have a responsibility
0: to shareholders and to the state governments to maximize revenue. And we've found through trial and error that that was the profit-maximizing decision. So
1: John, in, in terms of the, let's say the casual better, are they going to care as much about where the odds are? Or are they just going to go to their favorite sports? Bar?
2: Look, I think right now, there's not that many operators out there that are different in terms of their approach to pricing. Obviously, a lot of the major operators are buying supplier led um, pricing in externally and for at least for most of the core sports, we're in a position where we do all of it in house. Um, so I think to answer your question, I think that the vast majority of recreational bettors in the U.S. are not even aware that there's a price difference between our book and somebody else's. They have this kind of culturally led idea that the odds in Vegas are the odds, and that's just not simply the case anymore. I think, you know, Fanduel did more handle on its own than the whole of Nevada did on the Super Bowl alone, just as one sample size. So I understand culturally people are pointing pointing towards Las Vegas, but. Our perspective and our aim is to lead on pricing independently of what market consensus prices and offshores and other books are doing, and I think we're you know a long way from finalizing that, but we certainly made an effort. So I, I'm not a, I don't believe that the cons- consumer is fully aware of the price um, difference out there, but that will happen in time, like it did in Europe. And do you th- and,
1: and what happened in Europe? I mean, do you do you think it depends on the type of fan or better you are or? are all betters, all fans shopping around?
2: So I would say that over time it will decrease, actually. I think for price differential, it almost contradicts exactly what I just said, but <laughs> you're in a position where right now there's 35 operators in Colorado, for example. There's certainly be consolidation over the next 10 years, and as people get good at doing their own odds, everybody will self-identify from that perspective and you'll see a migration to what, what they do from a far more consolidated marketplace. So Jeff, how do you approach things as a better? Do you, do you shop around for the best odds? You, you
1: stay with one particular book?
3: I mean, historically, you know, like I don't, I'm not really a, a big better at all anymore, but I mean, the, the reality is like the professional betters that I know that price is all that matters. And there are operations of professional betters that have, that just all they do is basically shop for the best price and find the best price and look for arbitrage on pricing. But the casual better, I think, to John's point, I don't think thinks about that, right? Because again, it's like, it takes work, right? You have to have multiple books and it's not easy to get accounts set up, right? You got to do KYC, you got to go through the whole thing and you got to have money at these places. So, I mean, I I think the reality is that the pricing is not a big differentiator right now. Now, again, like to John's point, I think people may get more sophisticated, but the problem is that even within that sophistication, there's going to be all this consolidation, and you know, like if you're that sophisticated as a better? you're probably going to get, you know, banned or kicked out or limited from a lot of these sports books. So it's it, it will be interesting to see how much it matters to compete on price. And you know, I, I'm just you know, you have like the you know the like the Westgate or you know like South Park or South South uh, Point. South Point, Point. or um, Circa that are. You know, trying very hard to be, you know, pro, like put out the best prices in a lot of ways. Um, but I don't. I just don't. I don't. I think I agree with you. I don't know if it
1: really matters for the mainstream
3: better, especially right now, when people aren't mm-hmm. very sophisticated.
1: What do you think, Gene, from a standpoint of how you segment the audience? I mean, how you know, how do you factor that in? Because you know, a, a, yeah. a better who's, let's say, you know, an avid sports fan who maybe is a casual better, is betting for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they're just betting because they want to bet and support their team. You know, and it's think, not more complicated than that. I
0: think you'll see this in the extreme bets. And so the long shots that are, like, plus, you know, 10,000, like, intuitively, customers, the casual customer doesn't have an intuition behind the difference between a plus 9,000 and a plus 10,000 bet. It's just a long shot. And so they're just chasing the lottery phenomenon that I think a previous talk was talking about. And so that s- segment will not really pay attention to the price because they don't really understand and can conceptualize those long shot bets. So...
3: This is like a well-known thing in like horse racing, like people can't tell the difference between bad odds and really bad odds, right? So long shots in horse racing are typically just bad bets.
1: So, so John, as you look at the, the market in the US versus Europe, you a lot more sports in the US in some ways or wider interest across more sports. Do you, do you see this market you know, evolving differently as a result
2: of that? Yeah, there's a huge difference. I mean, the markets that we offer are far more broad in Europe than they are here. Um, we don't have regulation in the same way that we do in the U.S. So, for example, we're prohibited from betting on, you know, Tony Romo's tie color and on the announcement for the Super Bowl or whatever it might be. Um, they are, you know, markets that are fully accepted in Europe that people will wager on. There's a, I think, a natural maturity in the U.S. over time as we build confidence with regulators that there isn't integrity questionable. Um, reasons for them to ban and prohibit certain market types that don't happen on the field of play, as they like to call it. I think regulators have done a good job in general, but I think they're a little reluctant to open it up because uh, of what might happen rather than thinking about it in a different manner. Did you think we get to a point in the U.S. where you can bet on a
1: wide range of things? I mean, let's say everything. I mean, in in the U.K., for example, you can bet on everything from elections to names of, you know, the royal children and so on and so
2: forth. I mean, are we going to get to that point in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it'll take somebody to step over the breach. I think about things like the presidential election, it would have been, you know, probably the biggest single sports betting event had it been approved in any state in in the U.S. We've taken, you know, in excess of $500 million on that internationally in one event. So I think people are missing an opportunity. Canada is an opportunity in Ontario to maybe lead the way and... They have a really broad directive and we're hoping to launch there in the next month. And hopefully they kind of illustrate the opportunity that is there and some of the other regulators in the U.S. take it on board. And when you get to that level of optionality, where does analytics still play a role? Uh, not in the color of the Queen's hat at Royal Ascot, unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> yeah, look, we, we, we leverage it a lot for all of the core sports, particularly the U.S. ones, but uh, not for novelty markets like that. Yeah.
3: I mean, the election coverage was a huge analytical thing, right? Yeah. There was, you know, the, the offshore markets, as he's referring to, they were, they were very active, right? And they, if you followed them, even the night of the election, you know, there was a point that night where Trump was like minus 300, I think at one point, meaning like the markets thought that he had basically, what, like a, a 75% chance to win at that point And you know, like we've talked, like we I do a podcast, and we we interviewed a guy who um, did a lot of work around. You know, one of the things when we talk about analytics, right? At the core of analytics is data, right? And and you know, analytics is actually like the actual act of analytics is pretty much a commodity. Like all of you guys here know how to do you know whatever whatever method it is, build a model, logistical regression, all that kind of stuff. The key kind of to getting an advantage in sports betting is actually getting like uh, data asymmetry, which is getting data that no one else has. And so, at the core, you think a lot about in the elections: are there ways that you can get data that no one else had? And the guy that we we interviewed on the our podcast, um, who really thought Trump was going to win, he had a lot of data from like Florida that thought that he thought that Florida would actually go to Trump, which it did. What he made a mistake was his, he didn't, he thought that was actually gonna correlate with some of the other states that were swing states Um, and it it ended up not doing it, right? Because the reasons that Florida swung were different than just traditional like bipartisan, bipartisanism, so.
1: Well, it's almost like as we think about, you know, data as a predictor, obviously, and and with with betting, the, the, the feedback you're getting from betting markets informs what potentially is going to happen, right? So whether it's political events or sporting events, you know, that point in the European markets, you're seeing in a quite a robust way,
2: where the betting markets are referenced as, as a news story. Um, yeah, We're th- not there, obviously, here in the U.S. at all. I mean, I think there's a concerted effort for people to incorporate it in the narrative or in the broadcast that they give. And, yeah, I mean, in every walk of life in Europe, it's normal for people to reference the odds of something happening and... I think more, it's a more finer point in Europe than it is here. I think people have this idea of the desert in Las Vegas and point to it and say, well, it's minus 300 there without maybe necessarily understanding what that is referencing and what uh, inform, information that's adding to the point. But I, I think that will come with time as well. Like I said, New Jersey's just been the hub. and uh, New York is so much bigger than we expected. And I think as that rolls out across the country, you'll continue to see an escalation in that. What surprised you about the U.S. market? Yeah, um, the size for sure was the first thing. Um, you know, we, we had no concept that you know even recently. And Gene and I spoke about it earlier. Trying to model out what New York would look like internally was a, a pleasant surprise on day one. Maybe not for I'm not taking a shot now, but uh, Caesar's um, CS team. But for all of us, it was probably double the size that we expected it to be. It's uh, an absolute mon- you know monster at this stage and. I think points towards some of the other bigger states that we hope to get in the next couple of years. So size certainly was probably the biggest thing we noticed. It was and far why bigger was that, than the opportunity. You, you, so you, were, you really, because you, you would sort of argue that large state, large population, huge sports market. Uh, I think it, inherently true. it's as simple as the idea that far more people in the US were betting pre-regulation. Hmm. Like when we opened the doors, people weren't coming in saying, how do I place a, an 8 team round robin? They already knew. Uh, and I think that's kind of the gap that we missed. How are
1: you reaching out to that market? I mean, because there, obviously there's an opportunity to convert what is what was legal or still in a legal betting market in certain states to the legal betting market. How are we? Yeah, how are you, how are you actually activating that group? Is it just sort of you're assuming they're going to find you and they're going to begin to bet? Yeah, I mean, you're I think
2: out. offshore versus they're spending also. a lot
1: of money. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: I mean, a lot of money. What's the, what is, what is, what's the cost of acquiring a customer right now? Ours isn't as bad as you might think because we have a database from the DFS world. But there's certainly people out there paying five, six, seven hundred dollars per acquisition, which is, you know, unsustainable over time. Uh, we rely on product differential. I think our product versus offshore is massively different. You can do a lot more with our product internally than you can do with some of the offshores. Um, but it is a key point because, you know, the taxation in New York is pretty heavy. Let's say. And I think that one, for that's a good example for you know people, us trying to lobby the regulator to explain to them why pricing is uncompetitive versus what might be available offshore in, in those instances. And we were talking about this the other yeah. day. I mean, Massachusetts is obviously still not a legal betting market, and a lot of the non-legal
1: markets, you know, you you, you become aware of things like Venmo being used to place bets. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, do you? What is the point of view about use of? you know, payment systems to place betting in in illegal markets or even in legal markets. For me,
3: they're not really used to place the bets, right? They're used to transfer the money between, they still have like, all these illegal books, these guys probably don't want to talk about unregulated books that much, and I understand why. But there's a ton of books right now that you can still bet like with locals or offshores. And they all have websites, they all have mobile apps. So it's not really any different experience than what you get with the regulated i think the difference is that you don't for many of these don't even have to put up money right you're just betting on credit and the KYC isn't there i think the problem is that they're not regulated and so you can't trust them as well as you can trust i sort think that's a key
0: advantage guys. of why it's going through the regulated markets is the, the, the trust with the big bigger names the bigger brands and also you know, for caesar's one of our competitive advantages is our retail presence and a lot of customers still like to use cash and it's When you go to the casino, we still have all the AML checks at the cashier cage, but it's a lot easier to fund your wallet through the cashier cage. And so that's, while Venmo and other, there's a lot of other, like PayPal and other ways to fund your account, uh, I think it's just providing options to customers that make it as frictionless and easy as possible to get your money on the system.
1: So pivoting a little bit here, Gene, you've been in analytics for how many years now? Eleven years. So dream job? (laughs) Yes, my dream job at Caesars, yep. How did you get into this initially? You know, what, was, what drew you into this particular area of the business you know, in analytics in general?
0: I actually was uh, yeah, a big customer of Caesars before I joined as, a, as an employee. And so I lived in Chicago, frequent visitor to the Horseshoe Hammond property, and I would fly to Vegas uh, once a month to play poker. So in the mid-2000s, I was an avid poker player. And on one of those trips, I uh, met someone from HR at Caesars, or at Harris at the time.
1: The, in, got, in, got in through the poker channel. And how have you seen the industry change, you know, over, over this time period? I mean, did you imagine you'd be at this point where you're heavily involved with the sports betting operation and applying, you know, where, yeah. you, where you came from an Alex' standpoint?
0: Well, back then, sports wasn't a big thing, so it wasn't a key focus for the company. It was kind of put in the worst location, and it was kind of a break-even at best operation that hopefully their friends came and played a little blackjack but uh, it was kind of not viewed as an enterprise priority. And then when PAPS got repealed and we went through you know, the mergers, both the Eldorado merger and the William Hill merger, uh, it was more recently that we actually started paying attention and going you know, a lot more resources into uh, looking into the sports betting space.
3: I mean, I think that's an interesting thing to just kind of double-click on because I don't think people realize that, right? Like the, the actual like brick-and-mortar businesses around yes. sports betting were more or less like loss leaders and they were like yeah. almost like the casinos didn't even want them to like take up real estate but they had to have them cuz they would kind of like drive more people into their property to actually play table games and the reason that's an interesting thing to think about is it's not like fundamentally the business has changed because it's gone to mobile it's just become more accessible so if it was a bad business when it was brick and mortar yeah. is it going to become a better business because it's mobile just because you can get more volume probably not so what does end up happening does it mirror what happened in the brick and mortar meaning those sports books online become just ways to get people into an app where i gaming becomes like the core right like being yeah. able to play online casino games and things like that
0: i think that's the best way to extract the highest ltv out of a customer the sports was a great acquisition tool but then whether it's iGaming gaming or brick and mortar or even online poker in certain states it's really to grow the total wallet and the total experience.
3: But if that's true, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money right now in the <laughs> public markets. No, I'm, I'm, not like, yeah. I'm not being facetious. I'm saying like that's the reality right now with all the investment flowing into these businesses. Because if we don't believe these are long-term viable businesses, which I think there's, well, it's, it's, it's a challenge, right? Yeah, I mean, we've
0: said publicly we, we still want to make the online sports business a high-margin business by a you know, standalone you know, in the future. So we're still... Uh, aggressively investing into the long-term future of the online sports business, but our true optimization function is just total wallet share. So in that 51% tax market that we were just talking about in New York, if, they can, if we can convince you know, 5% of those customers to make a Vegas trip this summer, and at, what's the average spent in Vegas when you factor in food and beverage, hotel, and gaming on a three-day trip, uh, the LTVs get really high very quickly.
1: How do you, so, I, so I guess, from John, from your standpoint, how does FanDuel approach this? Because you don't necessarily have the, the brick and mortar piece as a Caesars does. Do you, do you view uh, lifetime value differently? Do you think about the, you know, the, the dimensions of how you would work with a customer in a different way?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, we have similar businesses. We have an online casino. We obviously have a TVG horse racing business as well. So there's certainly a desire to cross sell to those more profitable channels for sure. But I think Jeff's point and the finer point on this is that responsible gaming is a huge part of what we do. If you look at the European model, it's fundamentally broken over time and now the regulator when it's almost too late has forced the hand the hand of operators and I think one thing we're super conscious of at FanDuel is is not letting that happen in the same way. And again Jeff is looking at me squinting his eyes saying like what what does that really mean you're out there to make money and that's of course true but I think the worst mistake we could do is replicate what we did internationally and and ignore it, because that's, you know, at core what happened. And, you know, for us, it's about building models around, you know, sustainability for consumers and flagging and checking in with them more often. And we have certainly a direct strategy to be more on the front foot when it comes to that aspect, because, you know, Jeff is right, at the end of the day, people are going to lose a lot of money to this industry over time, they already have. But it's about trying to be as, I think, I don't know what the right word is but trying to be aware of that as we make our decisions i think is super important.
3: What i, I was kind of like what i was i mean obviously the loot, the 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 fan or the better losing is an issue but like i'm just more curious like about and i know it's hard for you guys to address this but both of the sort of scenarios that we talked about right you have your brick and mortar that you can drive people to to monetize at a higher rate you potentially have other businesses that you can drive them to but these businesses are much are being evaluated by investors on sports betting right now, right? They're not, they're, they're, there is a promise that sports betting is gonna be <coughs> a valuable thing for them, right? So if that is, doesn't end up being true, i.e., like, it's just not a high margin business and whatnot, like, what is gonna become of this industry?
2: Yeah, I, 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 don't, I, I think that's too pessimistic a view. I think we've built over time uh, a more profitable business from a whole percentage point of view. You can look at our market share when it comes to revenue and we over-index significantly there. So I think leaning on, you know, the, the recreational better and giving them products that they can interact with that don't mean they have to bet $1,000 on a game is a way to do that. And, you know, in 2021, our whole percentage was over 9% and people in Vegas think it's a 5 to 6%. We have a structural advantage because of the way we've built our business and we believe we can extend that over time.
0: I also think there's examples in the European market which have demonstrated at a mature state you can have profitable EBITDA margins um, that investors care about. And we have experience working in the video poker business. So the video poker business is another example with high volume, low hold, uh, low expected value for the casino but huge volumes and we've kind of figured out how to make that a profitable business as well over time when you have a low margin business. Um, so there's examples out there. So I have a
1: little more optimistic view that this can be a profitable um, channel. I hope so. <laughs> what, what does this do you know, to, to fan behavior over the years? I was, I was at a conference recently where there was a discussion about you know, are you gonna remember the, the time you won that crazy parlay you know, versus like the famous home run or the or the, or the famous touchdown. I mean, is this yeah. is this gonna is is the new fan gonna going to approach this in a different way through an eye of betting?
0: Yeah, I mean, I still remember when Virginia lost in the March Madness a few years ago, and that never happened. The number one seed loses to UMBC, and I was doing in-game betting at that time, and I thought Virginia can never lose. This is a 16 seed, and so some of those moments will you'll never forget. Um, and so I think. Just like there's memorable catches with the helmet catch at the Super Bowl, there will likely be memorable betting moments that people will have an emotional connection
1: with. So you're, on, you're, you're saying it's the same. So whether it's a, it's just a memorable re- betting moment yeah. or a, you know, a famous <laughs> sport moment, from your perspective, you're now saying they're on the same level.
0: Yeah, especially when there's money involved, you'll never forget. <laughs>
1: uh, John, how do you see that? Yeah, I
2: mean I just see people like for me the biggest difference, and I spoke about it with some of the leagues already, is that people are now consuming the game in a very, very different manner. You know, you bet a total in an NBA game and you can prime you can pretty much tune out until the last two minutes for most games and come back to it an hour and a half later and you know, understand and sweat whether you're about wins or loses. You know, for products like same game parlay and the player prop element, which has been a massive growth area for us that we've, you know, really, really focused on improving the proposition on. Um, You're now involved in every possession up and down the game. Every bounce of the ball matters to an assist, a rebound, a point, a steal, whatever it might be. And I, I just see now more so than ever when the fans are involved at that level of the sport, they're just going to stick around far, far longer and enjoy this experience in a very different manner.
1: And how do you, do you think your marketing Addresses that, in other words, because now it's all about customer acquisition. But but how do you begin to get into the storytelling around betting and engage on, on this front?
2: Yeah, I think our marketing team have done a really good job of leveraging what is same game parlay, educating people as to how it you know how it appeals, and then obviously we've used you know social media and influencers to try and you know um, give people a feel for what it's like to place that bet and interact with the product and. We've seen huge success from that, Jeff. What are your thoughts in
1: terms of? I mean, I know you got a lot of thoughts on this, right? So, in terms of where the betting industry, is, thoughts, where, yeah. the, where the industry is going, um, you know, has has anything so far surprised you, or counter to that, disappointed you? Um,
2: you can't ask Jeff my question. Like yeah, that. <laughs> the. I, mean, I mean, he's how the most long pessimistic uh, I've ever met.
3: No, I I think so. I think there's like a, you know, first principles question around whether like legalization has been good for the betting industry broadly. Right. And and it, and it mm-hmm. certainly has been from a safety standpoint. Right. Like because, you know, it, it was unsafe in some respects, like untru- but like they're not not across the board, but certainly in, in edge cases. So but I, I do think like um, it's challenging to think about, so I've been an entrepreneur my whole life until the last two years, and when all of this was getting legalized, people asked me, like, would you, why aren't you starting something in sports betting? And, um, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and someone tells you that you can enter a market that's highly regulated, that has incumbents with lots of money, that, oh, by the way, you might have to build 51 different products for, or 50 different products for, that's low margin, that you know is not incredibly innovative because of the licenses that you need to like pay to get i mean it just is a really challenging area to see real innovation in right and i think you know i i i worry about a lot about all these new incumbents coming in that are going to like because the cost of acquiring customer it's been documented it's so high right now and it's not sustainable right because ultimately. They're able to do this because you know some of these companies went public or they have venture money and all this kind of stuff. They're able to do that, but that's not sustainable over time. And if you add to that the fact that like the the actual TAM may shrink over time if people lose, right, and, and burn right out of of betting because they lose. Again, like for me, it's a tough industry because you can't make money unless other people lose, right. And I, I've bet my whole life, and I know that there are challenges with this whole idea of of problem gambling and just like what it causes and the idea that like you have a business that is predicated on other people losing is very challenging to think about as an industry that we do going forward. I think the other thing that worries me is that sort of the regulators or the the states kind of like looked at this pot of gold that would be out there for them and the reality is like the margins will probably end up being smaller for them or you know some of these and some of these tax rates are unsustainable over time, so I just think there's a lot that's really unknown. And I wrote an article for you guys when I worked for you, um, I don't know, like 10 years ago, that talked about what would happen when things went legal. And many of the things that I predicted at that time have happened, right? And it's and and it was it was a pessimistic view on sort of how the 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 country would go to regulation. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that that. That we'll see more innovation, and you know, like I, I have huge respect for these guys, even if I'm being a jerk right now. Um, but they're, you know, like the the idea that like there are smart people thinking about how to solve this problem and trying to make this interesting. Now, I, I think again, the problem is that they have these forces on them that make it hard for them to really innovate, right? Like John and I, John was on our podcast, and we kind of grilled him on some stuff, and you know, we talked a little bit about some of the technology challenges they face that don't ultimately help, like. And let them create the products that they want to create, because so much of the time that they're going right now and the effort is prioritized around opening new markets, right? So they can't prioritize a great feature that may be better for ten percent of their their base because they're trying to open Colorado. And like as someone that's run companies before, I can't blame them for prioritizing something that drives more top line revenue for them, you know over something that creates a better experience. But how long is that going to continue? And that really stifles the idea or the opportunity for innovation
1: within this industry. So you're saying in some ways, I think if this is right, Jeff, that by the, by the regulatory structure, you are limiting the innovation because you have to focus on the market launches, you have to focus on the compliance, and that may mean you're prioritizing that ahead of everything. Well, So, so the,
3: the key to, in it, to stimulating innovation is to lower the barrier to entry, right? Like that's the key in everything. So anytime you have regulation, Right, you, you have like some sort of like regulatory capture or whatever that you could do that could give you some innovation. But generally, when you like lower the when you raise, you know, like you to to build a sports betting, a new sports book, right? You need so many things right now. So that's really hard. And like licenses and and, you know, everything about it. It's just a very hard process. So then you have fewer people in there thinking about how to solve these problems. And then. You know, you have some of the bigger sports books, not one that's on the stage, that are just sort of like really swallowing up markets and r- really willing to like pay unsustainable amounts to swallow up these markets. And that is completely uh, something that will stifle emula- uh, you know innovation. I do
0: want to add, there is a positive to some of these barriers to entry. And so when you ever go through the licensing experience, uh, there's, you know, all the executives are past the suitability uh, measure. So, you know, There's, you know, folks that you can trust leading these companies, and you can trust that there's extra sets of oversight because, yes, that is kind of the casino business. There's lots of revenue at stake, but there's also negative externalities for constituents, and and so you kind of need need these barriers so that the handful of companies that are active operators can be on the same page when it comes to enforcement of things that help protect society.
1: So you're speaking, Gene, to the fact that there's a lot of accountability, a, yep. a lot of scrutiny you have to withstand, perhaps more than most other industries. Yeah,
0: like and, we self-report um, items to our Gaming Control Board in Nevada when we see something, we say something. Um, we've you know been role models in this space, but it, that's just kind of in our DNA, and there's a long comfort with the regulators that you have these relationships, and and so that expensive barrier to entry um, helps favor the incumbents, but it also helps protect you know for some of the some of the uh, negative externalities associated with that. But I want to
1: say a little bit where, where, where Jeff was, was, you know, talking for a second. I mean, the question is, does, does that approach, mm-hmm. d- does the requirement impact innovation in a negative way? Like, oh, yeah,
0: we've had uh, complaints for negative customer experience. We called about withdrawals. There's technology solutions we wish we could implement, but the KYC process, it's so hard and difficult to submit a picture of your license, your social security number, Making sure your uh, AML qualif- you know you don't have any you know, money laundering concerns, so there's a lot of red tape when it comes to just even signing up and so these are hurdles that usually technology alone can make easier and frictionless, but there's a reason with this you know, with these regulations that you kind
1: of have to go through that. How are you finding this, John, from the standpoint of FanDuel?
2: I think most of what Jeff said is probably off the back of what we discussed on the podcast, and the barriers are certainly too high. I take Jean's points on board, but they certainly will stifle us for some time as we think about rolling out across the country. Um, for us, it's a tech solve problem. Like we need to figure out how we can get better at what those requirements are and uh, create a resource independent of that that is able to continue to innovate. For us, you know our market share primarily comes down to that product advantage that I spoke to earlier, and I think you know for us to sit back in our laurels and look at the percentage that we have would be a big mistake. So, I take Jeff's point uh, on board, and it's certainly um, accurate. But I think we have a strong desire to overcome it by looking at, you know, how we, uh, you know, how we deploy more resources in the innovation space, because we believe that that will, you know, continue to extend, maintain, and extend the advantage that we have. Well, you're almost saying, how do you prioritise investment
1: in innovation versus investment and acquisition?
2: Yeah, I mean, like Jeff said, you know, we currently have a limited amount of resource and. You know if a strategy or the discussion comes down to should we build a feature that allows our stake factor customers to bet more or look at entering canada then there's only going to be one winner in that discussion so it's about separating them so in an ideal world which we all know we don't live in but you know mm-hmm. talk for a second about
1: how you might approach it differently if you is this a, is this i solve this with money or is this hey if we could if we could fast track regulation?
2: Look, the regulation, the blockers from regulation will continue to exist because we're on a state-by-state basis and, you know, everybody asks for something different in a different way and we've had, you know, even recent states, you know, represent pretty big challenges for us to get up and running. So, you'll never figure that out because that's just the way it's going to be and we work with regulators to try and influence their decision making around the directives, the legislation and the regulation that they put in place. But, yeah, I think you've got to separate the two, look at investment resource, look at the payoff. Uh, and we've done that, and we believe that this a positive decision to make.
1: Just want a, a quick time check. We have uh, about 14 minutes left. We are taking some questions uh, coming in via social media or otherwise, so we're happy to take any questions from the room as well. So, Jeff, you talk about your experience as a better, and you mentioned before you bet less today than you, you bet previously. Is there any particular reason driving that? Or is it about where your interest lies today? Is it about? Yeah, know? I mean, I have two kids, like a two year old and a four year old. And then the last thing I wanna be doing is
3: like checking my phone for scores when I'm supposed to be hanging out with them. And betting is a very, it's a very time consuming business, right? You have to spend and pay a lot of attention. And there's there's very few betters, like my podcast partner Rufus is a guy that just bets and forgets and doesn't, He's Very involved, but he doesn't sweat games, is what we call it. Um, And I I do think that the market has become a lot smarter. And so, again, like if you use sports bet at any kind of scale, you need to have an edge. And where do you get an edge from? And so, historically, if you look at sports betting from sort of like the you know early Billy Walters days or whatever to now, edges have come in a variety of different ways, right? Like the first people that actually started using analytics. That was an edge, right? But obviously now everyone's using analytics. And then there is data asymmetry, right, as I've mentioned. So can you get data that no one else has? And um, you know, I think there's uh, some famous sports betters that were walking around this, this, this conference who are known for actually creating their own data sets so that they had unique data sets that no one else had. And, and that was the way that they gained an advantage. So for me personally, I don't really have anything. I don't have the time to have an advantage. I have some friends that are good that I'll follow or tail from time to time. Um, and I, I just generally think it's a tough way to make a living, right? Like you, you, you know, if I told you guys the amount of money you would need to bet and the edge you would need to have to make 50K a year, right, most everyone in this room can get a job. I would assume like, you know, to, that would be more lucrative and have a higher ROI than being a professional sports better. It's not an incredibly lucrative thing to do because of all the reasons that we've talked about on this, po- on this panel. And so, um, you know, I think it's a fun, entertaining thing to do. I'll always, I'll always love the idea of watching a game with something riding on it. Like, I think that aspect of it, like you, you mentioned, like, is that, a, is that a net good thing? I think March Madness, right, has taught us that creating games and financial incentive to watch games creates more engagement, right? Like that you don't need lots of money on it. Like you have the $1, $10 office pool and people get really into March Madness for that. Like I think betting is here, it's here to stay. And I think that's a net good thing for us as sports fans and for the leagues and for you guys, right? But I think it is the job that, you know, specifically ESPN, the leagues, and the big sports books have to try to create innovation in this space because this, you know, one of the challenges that sports has always had with innovation is it's very gated, right? Like you guys control so much of mind share of sports fans. The leagues control the content there, you know, and, and the reason that we ha- we don't innovate as much in sports or as quickly as we do in other industries is because it's a very closed system and it's a very, you know, there, there's a few people that that really control what's going on. And so I would just like to see that not be the case in sports betting so we have some opportunity to really innovate in sports betting. And I sadly think it's going to be the opposite as we go to consolidation.
2: Yeah, I would just touch on one point you make because I think it's important. Um, You know, we probably took 10 million bets on the Super Bowl uh, this year. And when you talk about the opportunity, the amount of work and the sheer amount of people that can make a success of betting and everybody talks about analytics and how it gives you an edge. And I think a lot of people in the room might make the assumption that they could build a model that will make them profitable. We probably had four or five accounts entirely across that 8 million bets, 10 million bets that we would knowingly make a change to our lines, particularly across core markets. Sure, you can specialise in certain areas like player props or smaller markets that might represent a bigger edge, but it's just so hard to get the volume down that you would need to earn a a solid wage. And I think that's a really good call out, probably the first one he made today that was... (laughs) Uh, w- w- worthy but we uh, had a couple of good ones okay. I mean, we weren't, we weren't exactly. looking to replicate the first take up here but
1: clearly we've, we've <laughs> edged against but that
2: certainly a point that gets lost yeah. I think in the conversation
1: so we're getting a few questions coming in I think this, this one ties in a little bit to what you know John both you and Jeff are saying so the question is is there a whale problem in sports gambling if so can it be addressed without significantly lowering profit margins for the sports books uh,
2: I don't know exactly what the question is in is?
1: I mean I think I think they're
3: equating like whale and sharp right yeah. like so so whales are not necessarily sharp and in sports betting there's probably very few whales that are sharp otherwise they wouldn't be able to Correct. be whales right yeah so um, yeah so maybe just change that to sharps and you can answer that question so I guess
1: you know part of it is is the focus on the you know fewer betters but fewer larger betters versus you know a wider
2: swath of small bets? I mean I hope this answers the question but I think at a core you know whales are few and far between relatively speaking of course they're there and of course they contribute significantly to our industry and, and to our company um, I think the RG element that we spoke about is super important in that world um, we do take you know every step we can right now maybe not every step but we certainly try to do the best we can when it comes to making sure that we're looking after their interests and then from a sharp perspective I mean, relatively speaking, it is a tiny amount. I just gave the example, I think, of the number of bets that you know, we would have respected as sharp on core markets on an event like the Super Bowl, and maybe that's a bad example in isolation, but that's another conversation. Uh, are they a problem? Not significantly. I think there's an onus on the bookmaker, to be fair. Um, you know, we don't want to leverage the lazy risk strategy management that I mentioned before uh, in the US that we have certainly inherited from other jurisdictions well, that will take some time. And I would also say we're three and a half years in, like this isn't the end state that we have right now. And there's certainly a drive from our side, at least to, to make things better from both of those aspects.
1: So Gene, yeah. what are your thoughts in terms of focus well, on, you know, the larger bets, larger yeah. bettors, larger accounts versus, you know, every better is important. I, I
0: think the way to answer this is two, two, two answers. So from the casino's perspective, yes, there is the Pareto phenomenon where a handful of customers are disproportionate share the casino revenue. Um, and so we would call them whales of value to the casino. Then when you, but the, that doesn't mean they're sharp. Well, they're not sharp because they're losing a lot of money. Um, but then when you look at the sharps, there's segments within them. How are they sharp? Are they steam chasing and just operationally excellent? Are they arbing different lines? Or are they actually on the handful of really truly respected uh, sharp players? And so we just further look at their data and you know, kind of segment them appropriately. But by and far, like that's a small population, like John says, that the truly, truly sharp, where, where they actually can impact the line.
1: So the other question we have is, you know, I'll paraphrase a little bit here, is when you think about sports betting, is it really just another form of entertainment, right? Is, is the focus really on the enjoyment of placing the bet and then having extra interest in watching the game or having more excitement or more stress,
2: depending on the size of your bet? Sometimes the stress is the, the excitement. Um, yeah, I think it is. Like, from our perspective, it's designed to be recreational in nature. You know, the average <coughs> bet size in America right now is probably just a little bit south of $40. Um, most people like to have the skin in the game that Jeff alluded to earlier, and I think for $40 on a Friday night, if you want to watch the Celtics and sweat them losing another game, and you know, like I, I, the hottest I, team
3: in the NBA. I've got. I mean, like, <laughs> a, like, I've got I'm no. a Celtics fan, so he's like trying to take a <laughs> subtle shot at me.
2: I, I, I've got no issue with that, and I think that's, like Jeff said, you know, earlier. I think that's net net a well,
3: well, so this is an interesting perspective, right? And and I would have expected you guys to answer this exactly like that. And I'm not. We we've talked a lot about this because my podcast partner like kind of laments the idea that he, as a professional bettor, that is a winning bettor like that the, the world, the regulated markets in the US are not gonna be designed for him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the reality. Um, you know, I've had a past life as a, as a card counter and, and when I was winning in casinos, you know, I would get banned from casinos and I was told that the reason I would get banned, even though I was not doing anything illegal, is because betting uh, in a casino playing blackjack is a form of entertainment. And if I am not losing, I'm not paying my price of the entertainment. And therefore, it's like I'm sneaking into a movie without paying the ticket. This is literally what I was told by someone in the casino. And so when you ask that question to these guys, like I would expect them to answer nothing. But yes, it is a form of entertainment because if they're saying, no, it's actually like a a regulated financial market that, you know, professionals should be able to make money in then that's totally antithetical to how they run their businesses, essentially.
2: So, but, you, but you say that as if that's not you know, something that we're yeah. aware of. I think in general speaking, and we spoke already about the percentage of the business that is made up from the recreational customer base, You know, do we want to be in a position where we can give everybody a bet? Absolutely, we already do that. Do we do it to the levels that they want or might like? Certainly not in certain like, uh, instances. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a desire for us to be more ethical, as you call it, in terms of servicing everybody. Well,
3: I'm not saying that you're. I'm not saying that you're unethical with this. That wasn't my point. My point was that your point of view is that this is entertainment versus like. I mean, and, her, I'm, and I'm not. Ninety-nine
2: percent of the marketplace, it is absolutely
3: right. But you're, you're you know, like your. Goal is to provide an entertainment product versus a product that anyone can actually make money off of, right? And I understand. Yeah, I'm, I mean, not, that's I'm, not, like, I'm Vegas. not criticizing you for this. This is like sure. the reality of the way that this market is going, right? And that one of the reasons that I like look at it and say, "Gosh, this isn't something that I would want to do" is 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 because of that, right? And it's it's not like I'm one person. I'm not going to change the whole way that industry is going, and I could see the way the industry is going. Your point
2: is valid, though. Like I think there's an onus on the bookmakers, the operators, to be fairer when it comes to a broader spectrum rather than just the recreational base but that doesn't mean that overarching view from us should be that it is recreational i mean that that's the most sustainable manner that it can be in and i think that's the right approach but there's certainly the nuance or the edge case that you speak about about a really small minority of people who can't get a bet to the size that they want gene you were going to say something
0: oh no we are caesar's entertainment like entertainment is in our name las vegas is the entertainment capital, so that's the fundamental construct like that's you know, intended to help Nevada taxpayers get you know revenues. It's like, it's intended to provide you know revenue. Like that, it is it is what it is. It's entertainment, and so, yeah, there is a Griffin book to you know manage some of the you know the blackjack players, and so there are suppressions to those that don't contribute to the to the kind of overall goal. But yes, the whole premise and why That don't
3: lose essentially. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. The overall goal, right? Yeah, like 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 that's. We're, we're a public company and we have a responsibility to shareholders to make money. like.
2: Yeah, I think the, the ask for the sports books is slightly different, right? We set the lines. It's not like it just a fundamental edge within the game. And I think that's the onus that I speak about. There's an onus on us to make sure that our lines are as sharp as they can be. That We continue to innovate and get better at them. And we've certainly done that over time. I think that's the loss of edge that you alluded to earlier. But I, I take your point. Like, we, we have to get better. But it is difficult from our perspective you know, when you're offering 600 markets on every NFL game, it is very difficult The game changes. You can build the best model and pr- have your prices as, accurately, as accurate as you can going into a season. And then, you know, there's a fundamental change in the game where the analytics has played a different part. Like we had a prior uh, NHL model that we had to basically bin two years ago because all of the data that it was built off was before they started pulling the goalies. So for our first year here, in the last few minutes of the game, there was a significant edge to be had when you bet with fanduel on particularly around goal expectancy so you know that that's our job to fix and i think we've gradually uh, done a good job although we've a lot more to do in that space you but mentioned I John, certainly before agree. you mentioned
1: before the nhl right just we only have a couple minutes here but i thought you made an interesting comment about certain sports are underdeveloped from a standpoint of betting experience
2: yeah certainly the nhl like you know i look at nhl as a percentage of our total handle and everybody counts it as a core sport and you know, in 2021, it was four, less than 4% of our total handle, but 40% of our actives actually engage with the product in some way. And to me, that's just a you know, strong signal that, by the way, this product is shit. And, you know, I look at N- NFL, I look at the NBA and where we've got, you know, to the number of markets that I just mentioned, 600, 500 games, you know, markets on a game isn't unusual. Uh, and NHL is completely under underdeveloped in our, pers- from our perspective. and. A key goal for us in the next year is to make it more compelling to the casual better, although Jeff might not like that.
1: So we're wrapping up here in a second, Jeff, but, you know, parting shots, you know, in 45 (laughs) seconds or less. How many did I I get in? There's Uh. there's like the the reality
3: of, of everything that I'm kind of saying is I think there are just some harsh realities about sports betting and the legalization of sports betting. And I'm not saying that like, if I were on their side of the, I mean, I never would go to that side, but if I were on <laughs> their, that side of the business, that I, I wouldn't be any different, right? Like they're making decisions based on what their objective function is and that objective function is to make money, I get it. But I think as entrepreneurs, as betters, as people that are thinking about building business, like, you have to understand these realities when you go in because like, the thing that is tough right now is there is a lot of marketing that makes you believe differently. And I'm not saying you guys necessarily do it, but there are things out there, every story about Mattress Mike or about some you know, 15 game parlay that someone won, like that's designed to make you think that you can win and that they want you to win, right? And the reality is not that way, unfortunately. So that's just the reason that I'm being a jerk. Well, Good. it's one of the reasons.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> one the, of the other one is a bit more obvious. Yeah. But I think one thing we
0: can, you know, or one thing that I can state is that if you're passionate about this topic and this is something you're you're considering early in your careers, whether to build a company or to, um, you know, be a professional sports better, that, you know, the other path of, like, just working for a company like Caesars as a data scientist is probably a long-term safer route, and you could probably discount your cash flows from that perspective and be a more profitable decision than trying to try to beat the book where information is very in this age, very, you know,
1: commoditized. John, anything, any last thoughts from your standpoint? I'll give you the last
2: word. No, I, I that, that's it. I think it's been a, you know, I understand everyone's perspective. Balance, I think is important. Like I said, it is only three and a half years in and, you know, we're excited about the opportunity, excited about where this goes. And, you know, we're certainly on the innovation side, you know, leading the way when it comes to what we can do. I already just mentioned about hockey and that's something that I think is an area. College is another area where there's a huge opportunity for people. I think better you know, modeling data is a bit of a challenge in that world, but there's only room for improvement. I think over the next 10 years, this business is is set for the moon for sure. Great. Well,
1: big shout out and thank you to the panelists here. Thank you for the great discussion. Thanks all of you for hanging with us late. (laughs) Thank you guys.